Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. This is Mike Siegel. First of all, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to the show already. I appreciate that. If you can, try to tell about a million of your friends. That would be great. And uh, if you uh, have a moment, go to iTunes and maybe give us a nice review if you like what you hear. And uh, that will make the iTunes people uh, know of our existence, which would be awesome. And you can follow us on Twitter at Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. And if you want to go to the main website, TravelTalesPodcast.com, and you can write me a letter at Mike at TravelTalesPodcast.com. All right, guys. Hope you enjoy this episode. I'm having a lot of fun doing the show. And, uh, yeah, shoot me a letter. Let me know you like it. Write a nice review so I'm not just talking into the wind here. All right? All right. Enjoy, guys. I'm a traveling man. Made a lot of stops all over the world. And in every port, I own a heart of at least one love. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. Uh, my name is Mike Siegel. I am the host, and I welcome Mr. Roger Nygaard. How are you, Roger? Oh, good. It's very comfortable. You have a nice chair, which is a big part of doing a successful interview. My guest comfort is all is all I care about. That's it. Well, you, you left off the masseuse rubbing my shoulders. Oh, stick around, friend. So, this is going to get awkward. I'm going to have to cite you for that misdemeanor. <laughs> now, Roger, I would say that you and I, we know each other, but we don't know each other that well. We know, I prefer I've met... it that way. <laughs> the less you know about me, the happier you'll be. We have mutual friends, me. right? We have mutual friends. Probably Howie Gold would be our mutual connection. Yep. Uh, writer Howie. I used to live too close to Howie. Actually, <laughs> he lives in Santa Monica, and I used to live in Santa Monica. And if you're within the Golden Circle, right, the distance he's willing to drive, he will destroy your fax machine or your computer or whatever you need, <laughs> or your toilet, whatever depending you, on the day. If he need, if yeah, if there's something that would cost him money to go out and buy. <laughs> but it's easier to drive to your house to use it, then he'll go to your house and use it. So I moved just outside the Golden Circle now. I'm about five <laughs> miles away from Howie. Yeah, I'm uh, east of the 405, so I never You're really, safe. I never really get to see him. Um, but you are a director, I guess. You would you call yourself just a director now? You were also a writer. And... When people ask me, what do you do? The easiest <laughs> moniker I find is filmmaker. Filmmaker. I make films. I work in television as well, directing, editing, writing, producing. But you produce your own films as well, mostly. I've done some of that as well, yep. The biggest thing you're probably known for, I guess, uh, you did a movie called Trekkies, Trekkies which I'm sure yeah. got a huge uh, nerd following. The and most widely distributed, uh, yeah, I would say so. I enjoyed that movie. I saw it on cable. Showtime runs it uh, yeah, uh, constantly, which is okay. That's and good. there's a Trekkies 2. We did a sequel also yes. running often on Showtime. This is a documentary about the Star Trek fans. And you went to conventions and did all that? All over the world. We, we tracked down the most interesting, obsessive, fanatic fans of the TV show Star Trek. Right. Which brings me to your latest project, The Nature of Existence, which what? is a documentary. Uh, you can describe it. You basically went around the world, asked people why we're here. Yeah. There was a lot of traveling involved, which is, I guess, why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. And Trekkies 2 was sort of the dry run for the nature of existence because in Trekkies 2 we went all around the world to find Star Trek fans in other countries. While doing that, it that's kind of where the part of the, where the genesis of the new film, The Nature of Existence, occurred because I love traveling and I love having an excuse <laughs> to be able to write off all my travel as a business expense. I hear you, legally, buddy. I hear you. And making a documentary allows me to do that. So for The Nature of Existence, I traveled to all the the, the source of all of the major belief systems on the planet so i went to israel of course for the jews and christians and islam comes from there as well the, all, all the right. uh, those the western religions are the judeo-christian uh, triumvirate there correct yeah israel was great uh, it's a party country that's what i hear it, totally and and i was surprised at how secular the country is yeah it's mostly it's a bunch of atheists well were you in tel aviv i, I heard yes. jerusalem's a different vibe than tel yeah, aviv jerusalem's like a small town yeah and tel aviv is a big city and tel yeah. aviv's a, a party yeah the uh, there are orthodox jews there as well of course but they are maybe a minority there's not as i mean they get a lot of the press basically mm -hmm. you know there's not a, i guess it's not as interesting to report on what atheists are doing in in <laughs> israel but they are there are a lot of them i went to england to talk to scientists at oxford and uh, i went to stonehenge to talk to druids 
<laughs> got some stories about that. Oh, good. And I went to Italy for the the Pope. The Pope? You saw the Pope himself? I, tra- I tracked him down. I got within six feet of the Pope. Really? And, and shouted at him. Did his, you know, uh, fight... Why do we exist? Pope, hey, Pope, why do we exist? <laughs> Literally, that's what I did. That's what's in the movie. Did his finely dressed uh, Vatican guards uh, escort you out? Well, no, they, he went by pretty fast in his little Pope mobile. Okay. <laughs> so, I he was doing about 20 miles an hour, and then you just right. kind of shouted. Okay. blended in. <laughs> then I went to India, of course. I mean, it was, is one gigantic holy site. Yeah. Your shoes are off more than they're on touring india because it's so many holy sites and your shoes have to come off so tip to travelers wear flip-flops to india i learned that in india yeah yeah i went to china uh oh well india just to tell you why i was there i talked to hindus jainists sikhs muslims there are more muslims in india than any country in the world except indonesia actually. yeah uh, i was surprised at that actually yeah I, especially in uh, mumbai Right, the amount of Muslims that were there. Yeah, huge, huge population. That's where I did two of my interviews with uh, Muslims. I've got a great story about that. Now, to go from Trekkies to this, you said it was kind of a natural progression because it took you around the world. Do, do you think science fiction fans are more interested in the nature of existence because they're just so looking outwards and wondering why we're here? Are we a big accident, this galaxy? Or they just seem to be more in tune with that or aware of it? Well, to me, the definition of science fiction, true science fiction asks big questions and then attempts to answer it. It's not just a horror story in space. Alien is a great movie. It's just a horror story in space, right. for instance. Contact, the movie Contact, asks big questions and tries to answer, and it's, of course, based on a book written by Carl Sagan. But it also does have Matthew McConaughey, which kind of defeats its, uh, you know... you got to make a few a little less to the seriously. requirements of distribution. <laughs> right. So, yeah, sci-fi people and science. Science itself is trying to understand the nature of existence. I mean, they're breaking the the universe down into its most basic particles and trying to discover where those come from. You know, we used to think an atom was the smallest, and that's the Greek word for atom means smallest indivisible particle. But, of course, we know it's now made up of electrons and neutrons and protons, and and those are made up of even smaller things called quarks, and those are made up of even smaller things called what they just energy strings. And maybe it gets smaller. Who knows? But when you're doing that, it puts you in a philosophical frame of mind. Right. Well, you, I'm sure you heard the Stephen Hawking's latest announcement and all that. What was your feelings on him saying that – I think he basically said heaven is not – doesn't exist and all this other stuff and yeah, got a lot he, of heat he, for that. He, he came out and said that the creation of the universe does not require God. Right. It's a natural property of matter. Which, if you take God out of the equation, that, that makes some people a little bit anxious. <laughs> Especially in the good old U.S. of A., which are going to get heat if you, uh, if you, if you say anything. That, the United know, States God. is a very religious country. And, and, you, and you don't realize it until you leave, right? I mean, You can't even appreciate your country until you yes. leave it. You have to leave it and return to really understand where you came from. So was there a certain trigger in doing Trekkies 2 when you went around the world? Was there something that you said, like, wow, these guys are... Thinking a little heavier, and maybe this is – was there a certain moment that you can pinpoint? I was arguing with my producer, who, who is religious, arguing, you, d- discussing, debating, asking him questions because I didn't understand. How can you believe – look at look what these people believe. It's directly contrary to what you believe. How do you reconcile that? They're just all wrong? They think you're wrong. Right. If I'm an outsider – how do I know which one of you is correct? Or are you both bullshitting me, you know? <laughs> How do I figure... So that's partly where it started. Were you raised in a religious house? Uh, Episcopalian. Episcopalian. Which boy, is you were... Catholic light. Yeah, <laughs> boy. That is one white guy religion right yeah, there. Yeah, it's pretty liberal. Yeah. It's the same hymnal as a Catholic church. Less kneeling? Yeah, probably, <laughs> but not marginally. There's a lot right. of pray sans sit... You know, stand, sit, kneel, pray, stand, sit, kneel, over and over, repeat. A lot of that goes on. Is it all the drinking but less guilt? There's wine involved. (laughs) Much less guilt. Yeah, that's a good point. But it wasn't wasn't really hammered into you? Did you – have you followed up on it as an adult or was it just something you grew up with? I wouldn't use the word hammer to say what (laughs) what happened to us. It was more like just that's what we do on Sunday. On Christmas and Easter. And we're going to starve you until lunch because you go to church and then you go to brunch. So the whole – church for me was basically a countdown to brunch 
Right. You know, how much longer until pancakes? <laughs> you know, 20 more minutes till pancakes. So uh, that's how I viewed it. Right, right. So before we jump into the uh, nature of existence, which I saw and liked, by the way, I saw it in somebody's backyard, front yard, actually, in mm-hmm. Pasadena. Private screening. That's right. Yeah. It was very fun. Um, but back to the, the Trekkies, too, was there – how many countries did you go to? I think six. We picked some of the biggest – Star Trek countries where there would be the most fans, like Brazil and Australia and Brazil? England. Yeah. But it's really? also a big country. Oh, yeah. Right? So that helps. But, yeah, there are a lot of fans in Brazil. But something – I would love to see it in Portuguese. I want to see Picard speak in, <laughs> or Kirk or anybody in They've Portuguese. Yeah. If you want it, that's available. Well, it was funny. When I was in Brazil and I was, I was watching the television there and, you know, all these dubbed shows from America and everywhere else – that there's very few that are subtitled. And I asked uh, someone who lived there, how, it's like, how come they're not subtitled? And they said, well, so much of the population can't read. And if they can read, they can't read it that fast. So they have to dub everything into Portuguese. And it was very rare when you saw something you know, still in English. And so I was kind of like screwed. But it is kind of cool to see everybody's different voices. And that lasts about five minutes, and then I can't watch TV. Yeah, and you find out the, the degree to how, or how well someone speaks English varies from country to country and it depends on whether they do subtitling or dubbing if they do dubbing it their english is horrible if they, right uh, if they do subtitling their english is usually great because then they're forced to hear people it's a great english. way to learn yeah yeah i mean you see so many interviews with people and you ask them how did you learn english oh we would watch movies and yes. tv yeah so we went to brazil you went to, and you australia, went to england, australia england germany that's probably the biggest star trek country outside really? of the united states Germany, yeah, because I mean it makes sense if you think about it. Because if you, where you find Star Trek fans, it's usually where you find a lot of computers. Right. They go together, and Germany is a country that is just one giant collection of mechanical engineers. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of Star Trek fans there. A lot of computers. <laughs> Did everybody have like the universal themes about it? I mean, do they all believe, or were they in it for different reasons? Kind of. The, I mean, no, that they're commonalities. Right. They find acceptance at Star Trek conventions because they they all share certain values that underlie this TV show. And that's what set this show off from all others. And what made this the biggest franchise phenomenon in history is that there is a philosophy that underlies this TV show that people – that that attracts people. And it's one of – basically, in in short – a, it portrays a future that's positive for humanity. We're going right. forth. We're exploring. Things are getting better, not worse. There's more equality. Men and women are captains. The disabled. There's different races. Different option, species are on equal footing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is a metaphor, of course, for different races. Right. So people really respond to that, the positive message. Most science fiction portrays a negative future, a decaying, decrepit future where things are getting worse. Yeah, I would think that doing uh, you know, a movie on, on Star Trek conventions and stuff at least those people are i would think more positive they might be offbeat in their own way but it's not really a negative kind of thing it's not like doing i saw a documentary on heavy metal and you know they would go to uh norway and these guys obsessed with death and then there's then there's a dark speed metal kind of uh you know skinhead element and all this so that could get a little dark and evil you don't really see that in, in science fiction people do you very positive energy at star trek conventions so you go from that to you, you decide the nature of existence. You want to find out. Well, that movie. Why, are, why we are we here? Yeah, what is the point of everything? And so I traveled the world to all these belief systems and found experts and and everyday people and asked them to explain to me what is the point. What am I supposed <laughs> to be doing here? What's the right thing? I've got so many different uh, belief systems that are bombarding me with their pitch. How do I separate the truth from all of these and find the right path? But how do you begin, and how many countries did you go to? Well, there's the Western religions all originated in Israel. Right. Then there's the Eastern, which all sort of are branches on the same tree of Hinduism. They brought you to Japan, China. And then China is the other side, the other pillar, which is Confucianism and Taoism. Those are really the three... I, I would take a, make a four. The fourth being maybe paganism and Native American spiritualism, mm-hmm. which are very similar and they're very nature based. You know, we're all equal. You're, there's spirit in water, tree, birds, and humans. They're all on an equal footing. Well, would those be? You talk to druids in Stonehenge, and they yeah. still believe in the earth and the 
trees and the nature and stuff like that? It's it's trying to uh, exist in harmony with all of these things, as opposed to saying that the Earth was created for humans to use up, to and use then up. we'll be raptured to some future better place after we've destroyed, you know, our our, our Earth. Right. It, it's very contrary to that approach. So, how were you welcomed into these places? First of all, how did you get in contact with these leaders, and how? Do, why did they agree internet, to meet with you? The internet, email, shotgun approach. A lot of emails, and the ones who said yes, I showed up, and a few phone calls, and some I just just random chance. I would show up, like I went to Mount Tai Shan, which is the holiest mountain in China, and the reason it got that distinction is because it's the furthest east in China, and it sees the sunrise, the first place in China where you can see the sunrise. So now it's, it's their holiest mountain. Mm-hmm. At the top of that mountain are, are several temples that are built. And so I went to there with my guide slash translator, went to the biggest temple, the biggest Taoist temple, and said, hey, I'd like to talk to the boss. Is he available? <laughs> and they, they uh, okay. So they made an appointment, and I interviewed him the next morning. He was a 24th generation Taoist master. Wow. it has been in the family a long time. So he was essentially, it turned out, was sort of the pope of Taoism. I just went and said, hey, hello, can I talk to you? And he said, okay. <laughs> Not like that Pope in the Italy he was a little cruising by you in, to, in, right. in case in glass. This guy just welcomes well, you open I kinda, arms. I did kind of the same routine. I went to uh, the Vatican. I had set up a meeting with the bishop who's in charge of seeing the Pope and the press agent. Met with them and said, hey, I'd like to meet the Pope and like to interview the Pope. Can I do it? Is that okay? Is that cool? And they said, well, it's uh, it's not difficult to meet the Pope. You uh, you may get twenty minutes or so, as long as if you're one of our lowest tier uh, in, uh, donate donators, you know, it runs twenty thousand dollars. Oh, so basically, it costs twenty grand to get twenty minutes. It's a it's a thousand dollars a minute to to spend a little time with the Pope. It's like sleeping in the Lincoln bedroom. You know, the only ones who donate a certain amount, you get to sleep in the Lincoln bedroom. That's how the you world get to works. sit down with the Pope. Yeah, well, the more you spend, the more they're going to be happy about <laughs> right. talking to you and hearing what you have to say. But now, when you run into something like that, does that make you look at them in a different light? And you're maybe a little, you're like, what is this about? Yeah, is this well, more about the uh, cash? Cause... I, I put that segment in the movie. So, you know, in the movie, I just as I travel the world, you come with me. It's a travelogue of my right. journey to all the religious sites in the world and and uh, scientific. Uh, and uh, places, uh, colleges, string theorists, and atheists, and everyday people. You you know, you go with me, and you'll see what I see. And what I learned there was it's hard to meet the Pope, but not impossible. Yeah, got twenty grand. <laughs> I was willing to go as high as two hundred bucks, you know. <laughs> but beyond that, it wasn't worth it for me. Right. To hear right. what that guy had to say, <laughs> I, I know what he's going to say. And, and kind of when you're interviewing the religious experts. It's kind of boring because they all just regurgitate scripture. Yeah. They, they, they have the same thing. They read the same book. They're quoting from the same source. Whereas with, with uh, nuclear physicists or particle physicists, they will just blow your mind right. with stuff that you would never conceived of. You know, did you know that a photon, it travels at the speed of light, right? Exactly. We know that. Sure. It's massless, and that's why it can do that. Because it travels at the speed of light, it does not experience time. Therefore, a photon, from its point of view, is everywhere in the universe at once. Wow. It's like, my, really? In a, in a, in <laughs> and you're at lunch. And, and they're and downloading salt, this please. stuff at you. It's, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up in a house of uh, scientists. My, my parents were scientists, but they, didn't, they weren't like astrophysicists. What happened to you? Yeah, I know. I'm a huge failure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I do that. I tell jokes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they were always talking over my head. But consequently, I still... It's still fascinating to me. I don't like I don't like being the smartest person in the room wherever I'm at. You know, I'm, I'm much more interested in people talking over my head. I mean, it makes me a lot more curious rather than knowing what they're going to say. It's fun hanging around people. Who, I like who smart are, people. I love I love something to say. Yes, absolutely, and have an opinion and a strong opinion. But again, did you find, as opposed to you know, Judeo Christian. And Muslim clerics, did you find the Taoists uh, or the Confucianism people indifferent, or were they still quoting their you know, uh, book? Well, they're, they're very different from, from the Eastern religions in that Taoists and Confucianists don't believe in a god per se, but they, they believe in worshiping or respecting, is a better word, their ancestors. 
So essentially, they believe in ghosts. Right. Now, it, these are not just for my ignorance. This is not Buddhism. This is a different. No, Buddhism is a. You is did an talk offshoot. to a few of them. Yeah, it's an offshoot from Hinduism. Yes. Okay. Buddha was a Hindu. The Buddha was a Hindu, Siddhartha, and he created Buddhism as a direct reaction, a contrary reaction to Hinduism. It's actually everything Hinduism is. Buddhism is the opposite. It, so Buddhism, Buddhists, Buddhists are atheists. They mm-hmm. don't believe in a, having a hierarchy of like a church does where you have to go through to your, your priest who then goes to your bishop who then goes to your cardinal who goes to the – you can't go to God directly right. in the Catholic Church, for instance. You can go to the Pope for a few hundred thousand bucks. If you got money, then you can jump <laughs> – oh, you know, make, jump up the ladder. Right. They'll make exceptions for some reason. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how much it costs to jump right to God. <laughs> so Taoism uh, and Confucianism are – like all religions – it's a code for living. Here are rules for living that will give you, if you follow these rules, we have discovered over many lifetimes that you'll have a better, happier life. Yeah. That's the, the, the essence of it. From what I got from like traveling through Thailand, which is you know, predominantly Buddhist, and uh, I haven't done, you know, I haven't been to China yet or any of those, but I did find uh, Buddhism in their temples very kind of, I kind of liked it in the fact that it seemed very, about the individual. It's like you don't have to come here every Sunday and we do this. And it's just like, you know, the, the door's open. Come when you want to do it. You know, take this home with you or whatever. It seemed very mellow in that aspect. Am I wrong about no, that? Or yeah, looking inward, I mean, one difference I noticed between the Eastern and the Western philosophy or religions is that in, in the West we look outward for God and we pray for intervention. In the East they look inward and they meditate on self-realization. Yes. It's a different way to go. Yeah, the social aspect of church and everything is a huge factor here in America and stuff like that. Just Probably the, the biggest factor. Yeah, it's a community thing, less, you know, I mean, it's just being part of, people want to join a group. But there is a lot of overlap amongst all religions. Like, for instance, what is Jesus most known for? The golden rule. Right. The golden rule is do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, which is a little bit invasive. It's like, you know, go do unto them, you know, <laughs> whereas... Confucius. Who That's lived, assuming you want people to do something unto you, as you, well. You, right. If you're a masochist right. or a sadist, you know you may they may not be, and so how do you <laughs> right. judge what they want based on what you want? Confucius wrote a, his version of the Golden Rule several hundred years before Jesus. And it's called the Silver Rule, and it's slightly different. It's it goes like this: Do not do to others what you would not want done to yourself. Okay. It's Is that so a double negative? Is essentially, it, you know? it's live and let live. Yeah, leave, just leave people alone, which is different from like. See, I do can dig on them. that. That's kind of cool to me. That was Confucius. Yeah, and the golden rule, in whatever form, tends to uh, pop up in all cultures. It's essentially what the the social the anthropologists call reciprocal altruism, which is a requirement for any species that lives in groups in social groups. You have to practice reciprocal altruism. Trading favors, remembering who owes you a favor. You, you right. know, chimpanzees do it, and bonobos, and um, so do humans. We give it a name. We call it the golden rule. And then religion oftentimes adopts that as a prime directive, to use a Star Trek phrase, <laughs> right. or uh, a commandment, or whatever, what have you. Well, let's talk about the nuts and bolts of your trip and, and the traveling. Did you travel, I'm assuming, mostly by train? Through uh, Every China style and train, uh, boy, the train on China it's it's interesting because yeah. <laughs> when you go to the bathroom, is it a hole in the train? There's just a hole in the floor. Yeah, I saw that in India too. And so whatever comes out of you just goes on the train tracks. Yeah, it's got to be great living by the tracks, huh? And I read an article about a woman once gave birth to her baby, and it oh, came no. out and went through the hole, and they had to stop the train and go back and get the baby, <laughs> and it survived oh, apparently. Man. So, but the, yeah, take that, ladies in this country who take drugs and <laughs> with your Demerol shots and. So yeah, we have it better here, I think, in terms of facilities on trains. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing I learned too, I was traveling with my composer. He drew the straw for China and came with me to shoot B camera, and so we rented a, uh, these sleeping berths. And there's four to a room, and we we should have purchased all four. Yeah, because now you got to live. Yeah, we ended up. Yes, yeah, you never know who you're gonna with, get. Yeah, it's, it's like freshman dorm. You never know who's coming in. Luck of the draw. Who who's it gonna <laughs> yeah. be? You know, and uh, it doesn't cost that much. Right. In China, 
to rent all four, although, you know, a lot of people there can't afford it. But if you could have splurged the extra 15 bucks. Basic. To... It's about what it is. <laughs> yeah. So that was a lesson learned. <laughs> right. Who did come in? It was a couple. Okay. So it could have been worse. Right. And they were very, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it's they're not weird. listening you know it's kind of weird looking at them all night and them looking at you on the other side of the bunk right well, did you find that they were probably a little more frightened of you i think they were used to it right how how used are they i mean how accustomed are they to seeing uh the westerners well they're used to sleeping uh you know just crammed together in the in the, we were in the nice sleeping chamber yeah yeah there's you, plenty you of first class areas where yeah there's not it's not walled off you yeah know? <laughs> everybody's just sharing whatever space they can grab right right so I know in China, and then we'll get off China, because a friend of mine uh, also did this show, Jay Keith Van Stratton. We talked about China a lot. But I do remember from your film, that was where you got food poisoning of all the places. Was yeah. that the only place? It's always the water. I mean, I was traveling off the beaten path, and I was oftentimes really getting down in the dirt with people cause, who I was interviewing. And they will offer you food, and you have to say yes because you don't want to insult them right. because you want them to feel good about doing an interview with you. So we might keep that in mind as you're interviewing me here. <laughs> yeah. One place I went to was near the birthplace of Confucius and Lao Tzu, who's, who founded Taoism. They, they, they were contemporaries and, and came out of sort of the same area. But we were out in the middle of nowhere, and in the previous town, Billy Sullivan, who's my composer, he and I had told our, our uh, guide, hey, take us to where the, where the locals eat. We don't want to go where the tourists oh eat. Yeah. Take us you know, somewhere off the beaten path. So he took us to this noodle joint. I think we were the first Americans the people in this restaurant yeah. had ever seen. And and it looked like it was a, just a woman's house, I believe, it wasn't well, it? Well, prior to, prior to the, the okay. uh, food poisoning, this is why the food poisoning happened. <laughs> we went to this noodle joint, and uh, they were shocked and happy and pleased to see us. And they were the best noodles I've had in my life. Oh, great. It was just probably the, the, one of the best meals ever on the road. Fresh noodles. Really? Yeah, it was awesome. Noodles are boiled, yes. right? So you're pretty safe. So the next town, we thought, oh, let's try that again. Right. And so the local person was this woman's house. And she cooked, and she lives on this stream, this little, little mm-hmm. I wouldn't even call it a river. I guess it's almost a river, creek. Open sewer, creek, whatever you want to call it. flows into the creek. Exactly. So we ordered, uh, I ordered uh, chicken fried rice, and so that she went in the other room and strangled a chicken. Yeah. <laughs> threw it into this plastic bucket and it was still flopping even oh, with their no. with their neck broken they will continue to flop around right. for a while billy chicken with went, his head cut off yeah exactly billy went white and said i'm out of here <laughs> i'm going for a walk he left me alone so i now ate you the gotta chicken. take right she well, she took the chicken down to the river and cleaned it in the river rinsed it off in the river and brought it back and cooked it and i was hoping okay it's fried Hopefully, I'll be fine mm-hmm. once I got to look at that right. river. I should have known better seeing that river. <laughs> but I wanted to interview this woman. So, all right, I'm just going to ride this out. And, yeah, uh, the next day, it hit me. Oh. It, it's always the local water. Yeah. That's, that's where it comes from. They're all fine drinking it because they're used to it, right? I had it in India. Same thing. Um, I, 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 I got it in India, too. Yeah. It's we, just part of traveling. We went to uh, – and I, I had never – and I, I had eaten street food in Cambodia, and I had eaten – I had a pretty good stomach. And uh, yeah, That doesn't just, matter. No, and it, and it could be just a drop of water on the plate or something. I saw where we ate after lunch. I saw like, a guy run out to the – the lake or whatever, and uh, wash a plate in it. And I went, oh, no, that's, that can't be good. And it wasn't. It they was really it, bad. Uh, Delhi, Delhi belly. belly. Yeah. yeah. Delhi. So India, it happened to you too? Yeah. Well, in India, it lasted eight hours. I was okay. I had to live on the toilet. Yeah, I had two bad days. And in uh, China, it was two full days. Two full? Yeah. yeah. Oof. It would be horrible, though, if it had happened while we were traveling, driving from city to city, because there, there are no rest stops. Yeah, absolutely. You'd have to get out on the side of the road. That would have been awful. That happened to a girl in my group in India. She, it was, we had a bus, uh, like a six-hour bus ride the next day, and she, we had to pull over. It was, yeah, it was really bad. Yeah, it's not like here where there's rest stops everywhere and a nice clean bathroom and a McDonald's you can just go into and no, use the facilities. You're gonna be uh, humiliated. Yeah, it's gonna be. So, from China, you went to India. After that, so you're getting the two biggest countries out of the way. Yes, and. Uh, um, I mean, but each, you find, each, each trip took about a month of preparation yeah. and research, and then I spent about three, three to four weeks in each country. 
Do you find that when people ask me, you know, I've only been to India, I haven't been to China, but in a place where there's a billion people, you know, life is pretty cheap. You know, it's their one commodity. So in a place where human life is everywhere, do they have a feeling of why we're here, a, a different view of it? I mean, when there's just... My impression was Americans are far angrier than these people who have far less yeah. than we do. And you would think that people who have the most should be the happiest. And the smartest, hopefully. But that doesn't seem <laughs> yeah. to be the case. No. People here in America, that's what I noticed by leaving the United States and traveling in India, for instance, and coming home. Americans are really angry. And I, I, I attribute that to our culture teaches us that however much you have, it's not enough. Right. It's never enough. You should want more because that's ambition. And yes. Yeah. So you're continually frustrated your whole life because you don't have as much as whomever you're comparing yourself to at that moment. The secret to happiness, and that's what the Buddha said, is is to be happy with what you have. Yeah. How much do you need, really? You know, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. As long as you have your basic needs met, everybody has an equal capacity for happiness. Yeah. You can be just as happy as a billionaire, probably happier, and all you need. To be happy is two or three or four, five really good friends in life. Yeah. From that's it. That's the recipe. It's the the Sex in the City paradigm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, the, I read a, a book called The Progress Paradox. It's the same thing. It's just it, you more or less just compare yourself with everyone around you, rather than the bigger. And again, it's yeah. The more you have, the less happier people became. And it, it was a really Interesting thing. I think they say uh, like the poorest people in America have a better standard of living than I think 85% of the world population. So, That's true. And those are the, like the homeless here, I mean, really, in terms of like you know, uh, drinkable water, uh, energy, 50%, 50% um, of the world, sustenance, you know, anything. Half of the world lives, I think, on what is it, $2 or a dollar or less per day. Yeah. Half of the world lives on tiny amount of money yeah i remember uh, being in cambodia and seeing these kids who just uh, all they wanted was a well for the village so they didn't have to walk you know like uh, three miles every day just with a bucket and bring it back and then yeah it does add to your just you worry about the things and, that and, you worry and, and about we're wow. freaked out and and complaining because our internet went out for five minutes well that's also i think a a problem with uh americans lack of travel and it would do them a, a hell of a lot of good. Or like things like 9-11 happen and we go, why do they hate us so much? Well, there's reasons. You know, or, or they hate our freedoms. I don't think they really hate our freedoms as much as what we do with it. It's like, why do you need so much? Well, Living you know what? 3,000 square feet. In, Another thing you know? that travel does, and a very important thing, is it reduces racism. Yeah. And I think it was Mark Twain that said the best way to reduce fight bigotry or racism prejudice is to travel because yeah. then you go and you meet people and you see you know what they're okay they're right. fine they're nice they're just like you you know they're no worse no no better no they just want the same things yeah. you want like this Name dude just wants country. to feed his family and work you know he just wants a safe place for his kids yeah. to grow up there's yeah. there's no the, the islamic boogeyman that wants to get you doesn't exist so but you knew that traveling around you had been around before you did this film uh, was, was there anything that really kind of surprised you about any certain religion or any area you went to that you didn't expect? Every, I, I was surprised by everything. You know, I mean, I learned things. I didn't know what a Jainist was, for instance. Have you heard of Jainism? No. It's among the oldest, if not the oldest, continuously practiced religion on the planet. Originated about the same time with Hinduism. They're very related. But Jainists are the people who practice nonviolence to the extreme that they will sometimes sweep the ground before they walk on it in front of them so they won't step on uh, on insects and kill them. Wow. It's about karma. They don't want to harm another living being. Gotcha. They're vegetarians. That's where vegetarianism They won't swat from. a fly that's biting them or anything. Okay. Right. They'll try not to kill because it's all about improving your karma through nonviolence and nonharmful behavior. And, and Gandhi got all of his nonviolence ideas from the Jainists, even though he was a Hindu. So just right there, learning about and a whole culture, uh, it's a huge religion. Nobody really knows about it but in a, here in the United right. States. But in a harsh, uh, you know, kind of a cruel world, they'll be the first to get taken advantage of and, you know, brutalized probably. 
Well, you'd think that's probably but, what happened to them. I would assume. But uh, I mean, you don't. You never hear about a Jainist starting a war or a Buddhist starting a war or a Rastafarian actually. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. So they live right. peacefully and they don't harm anything. So they're not a threat. There's no reason to brutalize them because they're non-threatening. They, they're not trying to take anything from you. They're not trying to infringe on you. They're not trying but to. You know how the world works. I mean, they're taking up space. You know, and sometimes that's enough. Well, the only problem is when we run out of space. Yeah. Which, which is, we are. Right. That's where we are today. In the old days, there was plenty of space. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, the carrying capacity of the Earth is probably around 200 million for humans without electricity. Yeah. And that's about where it was for, for 100,000, 200,000 years. And now I think, are we up to 7 billion yet? Getting there. It's close, right? Getting close, yeah. Six, seven billion. So you went from there... So China to India, and you, I was in a Sikh temple as well, which I thought was... Oh, the Sikhs are interesting. Yeah, I was in the largest... Were you in the temple in Delhi? The largest yes. Sikh temple? Yes. They, uh, they call it a Gurdwara. Yeah. That's what their temple is called. And they wear a turban, but right. they're, they're not Arabs. Not even close, not even yeah. related. I mean, if you didn't know the difference, a lot of people mistake a Sikh for an Arab because they both wear turbans, yeah. but they're not at all similar. And the president, or the prime minister, is a Sikh. Right yeah, now, in often the, uh, they're yeah they are in politics, um, and they are also. But they're only like ten percent of Indians, I believe, or something like that. They're it's a not smaller a huge yes, number, right? Well, the Hindus are eighty percent of India. The yeah. vast majority are Hindu, and then the rest are the small these smaller mm-hmm. percentages. Is Muslim a second, though? I think now, wouldn't it be? I'd have to go, what am I, Wikipedia? Yeah, come uh, on, you did this. You did a film. <laughs> I'm calling you an expert. They're. Uh, they're up there. Um, right. I mean, even though it's probably like 5% Muslim, I think, in India, and even that's enough to make them the, yeah, the 5% second of largest. Yeah, 5% of 1.3 billion. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. My uh, guide in India described, they said their poverty line was considered if you didn't have either access to food, water, or shelter, you know, one of those, you were considered below the poverty line. Now our poverty line is like, Thirteen thousand a year, yeah, or something. Theirs is food, you don't water, have shelter. You, yeah, you might have cable, but not satellite. <laughs> exactly. And uh, he said a quarter of their population was under that line, which is three hundred million people, which is the size of America, which blew Part me of the away. Secret to traveling successfully is not to be ostentatious. Yeah, it is to be respectful, travel respectfully, and not don't don't walk around with a bullseye with a big target on your head. Right. You know, and I also I traveled to China and India as a tourist, even though I was bringing my camera and doing interviews. I got a tourist visa. Uh, it's much easier to travel as a tourist. And, and I, I acted like one. I stayed low-key and under the radar and never once had a problem. I mean, there were times where I made mistakes and faux pas. Like when I was interviewing this Muslim cleric in Mumbai, we were sitting down uh, on this marble floor in front of this uh, uh, Muslim temple mm-hmm. and my interviews often take over an hour and so you know it gets a little you get a cramp in your leg and so <laughs> i was sitting cross-legged so i unflexed my leg and like pointed my legs one of my legs forward oh but if you point your foot at someone it's a huge, huge insult. insult some guy came over and said hey tell that guy to quit pointing his foot at me <laughs> and the and the guy the cleric i was interviewing explained it to me and they said to the guy he doesn't know you know exactly yeah you know, so crisis averted and i i was apologetic because i didn't, didn't realize that was a big deal yeah yeah and also I, I remember i was in thailand and they it's if you never touch someone's head in thailand they said that is like the gravest you, you it's but like a penis and breasts yeah, are cool yeah, but you never touch someone on top of the head it's like really insulting or something like that well they Did, got a lot of hair products and you don't <laughs> yeah. want to mess that up did you ever run into any kind of trouble with the law or anything like that well, you'd think, you know, when I was in China, it's illegal to do interviews without telling the government or notifying the government that you're there to, to interview people. But mm-hmm. I traveled as a tourist, so I was a little nervous that I was going to, you know, run into some trouble. But I was never hassled once in China. And I was asking people things about abortion, which is illegal, and they're talking about things that get them in trouble. And everyone was fine. <laughs> they, they had no problems anywhere. The the place I've have been hassled the most, probably neck and neck, two countries is the United States and England. Really, everybody and it's after nine eleven. Everybody's on edge, right. and 
Hey, you can't have that camera in here. What are you doing with that camera? Hey, who, what's that for? You know, all yeah. kinds of people are, are paranoid. Partly, I, I explain that I, because of the prevalence of reality shows and YouTube, where a camera now equals humiliation. Right. Reality shows are about humiliating people. And they want to, yeah, they also don't want to be caught in that moment where they're not doing their job and you po post it on YouTube and then yeah. it comes back to them. And China, it's not as, uh, that reality shows haven't saturated <laughs> yeah. their, their mindset there, you know, so it's different. But they do also live with the government, you know, always over their shoulder. They never really know who's with, who. you know, they're careful of what they say. Yeah, they got that problem. Do. Yeah. When we were traveling, uh, my co-editor, co-producer, Paul Tarantino, he drew the straw for England, and we were traveling through customs in Heathrow, and I had the camera out. Paul was holding the camera and, like, getting shots of me uh, on the people mover as we're going toward customs. Right. Beautiful sunset, so I could do some of my stand-ups. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm here in England. I'm going to talk to so-and-so at Oxford, interview Richard Dawkins. Because in England, you got to catch the uh, sun. When it, when it comes out. Yeah, it's, 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 it may only happen once a week. It's rare. <laughs> so, yeah, we were lucky. And so we walked into the customs area. And then w once we got up to where they interview you, it's the same as the United States. You know, you go through a line and then you get up to the front. Yeah. They said, uh, come with us, please. It's one of those. Guys came up all around us, you know, with, with sunglass type guys. And they took us into this special room and looked through every scrap of paper in our carry-on bags and what are you doing? What are you, why are you photographing? What is that for? <laughs> what are you doing? Who are you here to see? It just, you know, and they separated us so right. they could see if we, we, our stories matched up. And it's like on one of the papers, it's, you know, I'd interviewed a rabbi in Israel. Who's the rabbi? Which rabbi? It's like, is though a rabbi's now uh, causing problems? You mean problems? a cleric? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so we just, you know, stuck to the truth. And so finally they, they let us go. I'm really but, convinced that so much of this. You know, taking your shoes off at the airport and all this other crap, but you never do it any other other than the only place I've had to take my shoes off at an airport was in America and and England, actually. Yeah. Everywhere else, yeah, they just. Two I'm most convinced that so much countries. of it is just window dressing to give you the illusion that you're safe. I flew into Norway, and you get off the airplane, and there's nobody. Yeah. There's no customs. There's no lines. You just get your bag. There's no no police, nothing, and then you walk out of the airport. <laughs> I was wow, it's a completely different mindset. No nobody's angry at Norway. No, so they don't have to worry about it. That's true. What was your biggest misconception about the Middle East? Where you? I know you went to Israel. Did you go to? I tried what? to go to Iran and I looked into Saudi Arabia, but you can't go there unless you well, like Saudi Arabia. You have to be a Muslim or know a prince. Or work, really? or working for an oil company who gets you well, uh, a yeah. visa. Otherwise, you can't just go there. It's that closed. I didn't know Saudi, yeah. Saudi Arabia was that shut out. Yeah, very much. And uh, Jordan, Iran, Syria, did you go to any of those? Those are easier, I think. Yeah. But Iran, same thing. You need a visa, and you can't get a visa if you're any kind of press. Right. And I made the mistake. That was where I learned my first lesson. You just go as a tourist. Mm -hmm. And so Iran, you kind of have to go as part of a group so they can keep an eye on you. It's easier to fudge it, I think, if you say you're a tourist because now everybody has like a little mini camera in their yeah. pocket and you can you can grab right. you know stuff on the fly and guerrilla shoot stuff. Exactly. But um, so you went to Israel, and when you think of Americans' opinions in Israel, and then having been there, because you know the great majority of Americans have never been to Israel, but yet it's such it plays such a huge part of our policy. What are Americans most mistaken about? The food. You cannot get a bagel <laughs> to save your life in Israel. That's a New York thing. Yeah. And I think it's also like a Eastern Europe kind of thing. Yeah, right. Because that's where my, do. you know, most of the Jews in this country, like my grandfather and, his, and my grandmother, and they, they're all from Russia and Poland. I think that was through that thing. It's not like a when Mediterranean you, thing those, at all. When uh, those Polish Jews go to Israel, they're not taking bagels. Right. Like, <laughs> They've got other bread products that look nothing like a bagel. Pita bread and hummus, baby. It's much more Middle Eastern. So the food, I love Middle Eastern food. So yeah, that's why they look so much better. Yeah, oh, everybody's skinnier there. Oh it's true. yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, that's another thing. When you come back to America after traveling, yeah, my grandmother ate borscht, you know, and crap like that from Russia. I mean, they ate a potato that boiled. And it was awful. America is overweight. Yes, it's comparison. A, yeah, you learn that everywhere you go. But did you? Uh, oh, I have to ask you this about Israel. 
Because every dude that ever goes to Israel, uh, they always say the same thing. Like, the women are unbelievable. It's true. Is that true? They're they're skinny and d- dark hair and beautiful. And and, carrying rifles. And, yeah. Sexy and, in a way. Well, they all had to go into the military for yeah. two years. And they speak English. Yeah. I heard that. I was just gorgeous from what I hear. One great thing, I mean, you know, as far as, you know, like single people traveling, you know, if you go to another country, you are that alluring stranger. <laughs> yeah. Oh, strange is different, you know, and, and interesting. So what was the reaction with you and your camera and uh, asking about the nature of existence in Israel? Well, Israel, because they're sort of surrounded by people that want to kill them. Yeah. It puts them in a very sort of uh, a mindset where they value the moment living in the moment time is precious because you may not have tomorrow mm-hmm. and we sort of have to be reminded of that because we forget that you really do have to enjoy this moment right now because you can't get it back 10 years from now you're going to look back and go man that was a great time i wish i had realized it no matter what how old you are now 10 years from now you're going to be thinking that was great <laughs> so you should enjoy right now and, and in israel they're very much like that. it's a party country yeah there's well, a few. There's some countries like that that we know where the people love to celebrate, and Brazil mm-hmm. is another one. Oh, Brazil, yeah. People, it, that whole country is. It's like a house where the parents are gone. <laughs> I never, yeah, I never uh, heard it put that way. But Partying, that's a good... celebrating, oh, yeah, upbeat, they love it, positive. They're not repressed. And I do not have uh, do not have a lot of money, and it doesn't doesn't seem to matter. I yeah. mean, it matters. I mean, the crime is high, but um, boy. Everywhere you go, somebody's dancing. It's somebody's... hard to leave Brazil. You have to – it's yeah. like I'm going in. You tie a rope around your waist, and you give it to your friends and say, if I'm not <laughs> back in three weeks, yank me out of there. <laughs> but in Israel, you know, we talk about flying into there. You know, it's not like Norway where <laughs> there's no cops. That is – yeah. <laughs> that is the most – That's the heaviest security you'll probably strict, ever see. Strict, but it's also – the way they do it is smart. Mm-hmm. It's uh, – they do an interview. They interview you. As Everyone. You, as you come in to the country, mm-hmm. you have to talk to someone. And it's just, it's not a short, you know, where are you going, what are you doing? They ask you a lot of questions just, just to see if you're nervous in any way. Oh. They're looking for the nervous people. What did they ask you? Uh, yeah, well, they start with the basics. Well, who, are you, who are you seeing here? Mm-hmm. Where are you staying? What's your job? What's in your bag? What are you carrying here? What, why are you here? What, how long are you staying? Uh, who do you know here? Why do you want to see Israel? Right. Uh, Mr. Episcopalian, what's your deal? Yeah. Different <laughs> variations of what's the deal. Yeah. Why are you here, pal? But you didn't mention anything about a film or journalism? I told or... them the truth. I'm here. For, I was there for a Star Trek convention. Oh. As a matter of right. fact, they were screening Trekkies, and uh, I had just started shooting The Nature of Existence, my, the current film. And so I told them I was a filmmaker, and right. I was there to talk at this convention. And, now, were you wearing your Spock uh, ears at this point, or did those go on don't later? Don't own any, so <laughs> couldn't do that. But, you know, that was probably more of an unusual story that, right. okay, who's going to make that up? <laughs> what terrorist is going to come up with that? So, But apparently their system is very effective. They've never yeah. had anybody slip through that sort of thing. Right. It's much better than full body scanners. Is to sit someone down and ask some questions and look for the nervous ones. Did you find that the religious leaders in other countries that you talk to, if you talk to their equivalent in their whatever religion in America, you think they'd have the same answer, or do you think just because they're studying the same book and depends else? on if it's the same sect. You know, there are yeah. there's the Nation of Islam, which is the Americanized version. Yeah, that's a whole different and deal. You know the original Islam. They don't see that nation of Islam as the same thing. Yeah, but they're based on the same book. Well, Episcopalian, they would they would say well, there's a whole different offshoot. Yeah, it's of, the American version of Mormons and of everything else. The uh, Church of England. Yeah, and the Church of England came about because uh, I forget which king it was. Well, Henry VIII. The divorce. Yeah, and Henry VIII. The Pope VIII. would not grant the divorce, so he said, "Okay, I'll start my own you. church. I'm now the head of the church. <laughs> You're not." And that became the Church of England. Protestants, well, you yeah. know. I mean, you said you had a, a couple other stories. And what, what really stands out in your mind from traveling? Boy, I hate packing. Travel light. <laughs> I've learned to travel light and yes. figure out, you know what, I'll find a washing machine on the road. Or buy it. You know, clothes are not expensive, especially if you go to a warm-weather place. I mean, you go to a market. I mean, there's, there's 
You can get anything there. Cheap. The most important thing is clean underwear and clean undershirt. Yeah. I want to at least feel like those are clean. And something to protect you from rain. That's what I found. That's smart. Yeah. Uh, just a light thing. And now with like super high-tech, wickable stuff, I mean, you can you go to any camp. You go to an REI, and I mean, they have amazing stuff. Well, tips on travel. I mean, if we could do a couple of those. Yeah. If you're traveling overseas and you've got a passport, make a color Xerox of your passport before you leave. And put that in a separate place from where your passport is. Mm-hmm. So if you lose your passport, it's a big hassle to get it replaced. At the you got to go to whatever a local consulate. consulate. Yeah. And if you've got a color Xerox of your original passport, it's much easier to get that process handled. Right. Right. And your visa, whatever you need. Plus, when you check in at hotels, they often ask you to for your passport. And mm-hmm. I never surrender my passport to anybody. Right. Because. You could forget it or something horrible happens. They destroy it. So I give them – I have another color Xerox. Here you go. You can use this. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you pee on it or spill ketchup <laughs> on it, pal. You know what? I uh, Also, there was a guy I traveled with I met uh, on the road, and he was an older guy, and he carried one of his old passports that had since expired. That's and he's like nine, out of, nine times out of ten, they don't even notice. Like yeah. he'll hand him that one. Yeah, that's true. If, if he wants to handle, but something. if they do notice, but they do notice, I mean, you're playing with fire. Yeah, but you if it's a hotel, uh, set off know. a red flag. I, I'm sure he didn't do it at the airport, but I mean, again, hotels, yeah, hotels fine. are, yeah, you'll check in somewhere and they'll, they'll hold your passport for you. I, I always very, I'm very nervous about that sometimes. Yeah. Did you ever have a problem with it? Do you ever? Did you ever lose one? Uh, I didn't, but my sound operator did. My sound mixer. Oh. Uh, he left it in the car in his in his backpack, and it was stolen. Uh, we were in Italy. Oh. If you go to Italy, part of the experience is you're going to have something stolen. There's a lot of pickpockets in Italy. I, I had a camera stolen there. My video camera was stolen in, in Italy. When I came uh, by train into, into Rome, the main train station, and was going to stay at a, uh, a nunnery. Oh. You can stay at nunneries. This is, I, I stayed in a monastery in Rome. Right. Yeah. yeah, you can look up these places. This was a, a Vietnamese nuns. And I thought, that'll be really interesting, and I can maybe interview them. And, mm-hmm. and it, But it was about like five to eight kilometers away from the, the train station, so I was going to get a cab. <laughs> and the day I, I arrived in Rome, the cabbies went on strike. Oh. Imagine Rome with taxi strikes, right? Oh, my gosh. I was going up and down stairs trying to figure out which bus to take to which subway. And in in the confusion, somebody walked off with my Pelican case. Oh. So I never made it to the nunnery, got a hotel at uh, right near the train station, and had to, to rent a camera the next day. So you know, it cost me some money. But, you know, it's part of the traveling experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, as long as you weren't mugged to get that, you know, I mean – because that happens a lot. I mean, yes. we heard all those. I took the overnight train to Rome on my first trip. When I was doing the year rail thing. Went from like I think it was Monte Carlo to to Rome, and they were giving us all the warnings because you know they'll they'll uh, put a hose in there with like nitrous oxide to knock you out while you sleep, and uh-huh. then go through your stuff. But there were people walking around the train. I saw somebody flash a flashlight into our sleeping cabin, you know, and. Uh, yeah, so it you is. want to not make yourself a target. It's like yeah. the, I was traveling with my associate producer Laurel, and uh, she was wearing this jewelry, and I said, "Take that jewelry." Oh yeah, off. the flashier jewelry that happened to me in England. Yeah, or, take uh, off the jewelry India. and the high heels. Just put on some good walking shoes, some some not flashy pants. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't impress anybody here. So what's next for you? Well, as usual, I'm about to hit the road again. Again. Uh, it, which is how I stay one step ahead of the cops. <laughs> I didn't know you were a wanted man. Yeah, well, the less you know, the better. Okay? <laughs> let's not even, not even discuss that. Uh, headed up to Canada, do a little fishing trip. Canada and, covers a lot of ground. It, Any particular part? I'm from Minnesota, and so I used to go fishing up to Ontario with my father all the time. So uh, it's kind of a pilgrimage back to the old fishing grounds. And uh, Minnesota, where I'm from, is known as the uh, land of 10,000 lakes. You may have heard of that. Land of lakes? Love its butter. Ironically, Wisconsin, right next door, has 16,000 lakes or 17,000. It has almost one one and a half as many lakes. Then Ontario. Do you want to take a guess at how many lakes Ontario has? I'm going to go, well, the way you're setting it up, I'm going to think it's probably more than Wisconsin. I'm going to say 50,000 lakes. Good guess. 350,000 lakes. 350. I was a little off. If you fly over Ontario and look down, all, it's just lakes as far as you can see. It's unbelievable. Well, how do you pick one? Is there a certain fish you're going after? 
they all have walleye. That's the fish you want is walleye. Walleye, The best-tasting right. freshwater fish on the planet. I love a good walleye. They'll have some lake trout, northern pike, muskie. The muskies are big. Was it, was it Hayward, Wisconsin, has the giant muskie? Yeah, they've the big... got them. Yep. I, I've been to Hayward. Yeah, me too. I've been, I went to summer camp way up in northern Wisconsin. Yeah, growing it's beautiful up, up there. Oh, it's with, great. Uh, there's also a lot of rivers. I remember canoeing the Crow River and yeah. the Chippewa River. Oh, yeah. We used to take canoe trips up to the Flambeau flowage. Flambeau, you know? right. Yeah. I, and I remember drinking out of the river. Yes. And they gave us – we would take these trips, and uh, they gave us these little uh, sterilization pills or, you know, those chlorine tablets or something we're supposed yeah. to use. Let's just and we never did. We just drank. Just to make you feel better about it. <laughs> I know. But you can, can you do even that. still do that now? In, I, in Canada, you certainly can. Up the, that far north, you drink out of the lakes. You oh, know. Boy. I mean, they still they recommend you boil it, but, you know, you can if you want to feel better about it. But Even after China, you're not a little queasy about the, about the water? It's uh, as <laughs> even good as after it gets, that China experience. I would think the water coming out of your tap or your sparklets dispenser is going to be more radioactive than the lakes up in Canada. <laughs> you think? Probably. My brother loves fishing. I never got it. Well, ice fishing never is for it. the alcoholics who have wives they don't want to go home to right away. Exactly. How bad do you want to be out of the house? Yeah, they'll go sit out in that little shed, that their little little shack, <laughs> clubhouse, legal clubhouse for alcohol. So you're going to be up there for a week. You're going to fish. You're going to think. Yep. Backwoods, bring my computer, do a little writing, and get away from uh, emails and podcasts and, and all the evils of modern society. After the experiences you had of uh, Eastern religions and stuff like that, do you meditate now? Did you take that away from it? I was doing meditation type stuff, I would mm-hmm. call it, before I even went there and found a new appreciation for it. And meditation, my interpretation, what I learned about meditation, is just a way to still the brain to make you stop thinking to stop the thoughts the constant thoughts we have in our head that's what causes stress if you can stop the thoughts suddenly you're not stressed anymore we're, we're like uh because we have a frontal lobe mm-hmm. uh lizards don't right but because we do we understand the concept of time so we get right. stressed which is why lizards don't wear watches is that what you're saying they couldn't care less what time it is <laughs> and so that's the state you want to regress to is that point, and meditation is one way of doing that. If you have to look back on all those places you went, what did you take away from all these travels around the world, and, and how has it changed you? Uh, finding new food, finding new adventures, ex- exploring the world. That's why we exist, really, is to explore, to meet new people, and to learn from them. Do you think it's dangerous that few, fewer people leave the house now? Yeah, with the internet and... I think it's dangerous not to leave the house. I think, that's <laughs> yeah. what, I think I'm agreeing with you. Right, right. It's not dangerous to go places. Yeah. Nobody's, gonna, nobody's out there waiting to, to get you. There's no boogeyman <laughs> wait. The boogeyman's at home in, in, in the form of your brain atrophying and your social skills and your social enjoyment atrophying. Get out there and grab life and seize it while you still can. It's not that big a risk to get a passport and book a hotel somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, and go there and say hello to people. Take some pictures of the some leaning towers or something. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's gonna get you. Be respectful and <laughs> uh, and be nice to people and be interested. Generally interested in in what they have to say. You know, one mistake I think that Americans make, and not just Americans, but some, when some people travel, is they go places and they tell people what they need to do. Instead of going somewhere and actually listening to what other people think, I think as a country, for sure, we would we'd be much more well liked in the world. Oh yeah, if we practiced that approach, and I think we we would maybe be more successful in a lot of ways too. You know, in in terms of integrating our philosophies around the world, which is you know part of what when when cultures collide or when cultures intersect or overlap, there is a little turf war, a culture turf war that goes on. So keep, you keep, kind of keep that in mind and remember it's more important. To, social interaction, human interaction is, is, is it's important and it's, it's more important than winning some culture war. So the final plug for the movie, where can people find this? My where can film, they see you? The Nature of Existence, is a world-traveling story. It's an epic of world travel. Um, you can find it on my website, thenatureofexistence.com. 
It's also in all the usual suspects, Netflix, Amazon, wherever you like to shop, uh, you know, you name it. So if you want to find out the nature of existence and also see Roger doubled over in pain from a poison poison chicken. Meeting Jainists and Confucianists, (laughs) Taoists, Christians, Atheists, Jews, and asking them all, why do we exist? You'll see what I found, what, what they told me. And along with some great scenery. And some food, interesting food, and <laughs> all sorts of uh, uh, the flavors of the world, culturally. Thanks for coming. Anytime. All right.